get any of that. We don't get the hero theme. We don't get the journey theme. We don't get the uh, the antagonist theme. What we get is one summer's day. Alright, so welcome to another episode of Sitting at the Table, and this one is a pretty special one. I'm super excited, because mm -hmm. we're doing our first Ghibli movie film score, which is Spirited Away. Mm -hmm. Alright, so if you've been on my channel for a while, you know that Studio Ghibli is a huge influence for me. Alright, especially the film scored by Joey Hisaishi, who is by far my favorite composer and the single biggest influence I have for getting into music and media composing in the first place. I would not be doing what I'm doing if it wasn't for him and his music, all right? So I'm super excited. This is one of my favorite films. It's one of my favorite soundtracks. And this was the first time I finally got Antonio to actually watch the entire thing. All the way through. Yes, because we, we've tried. There have been three times before this that we started watching and he'd fall asleep. Well, one of the beautiful tenets of ADHD is if something doesn't grab your attention right out of the gate, then it's... Uh... <laughs> you, 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 it'll lose you. It'll Plus, lose you. It, it is such a beautiful vibe, this film, mm -hmm. that it can make you feel very drowsy. Yes. It's a very pleasing vibe. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so you know the drill by now. We've each got three scenes that we picked watching the movie that we both think young composers or just film enthusiasts and hobbyists can learn from. And as we go, we'll kind of explain, point out the different things that we'd like and we'll just share our perspectives. Me, as a trained therapist turned professional musician, and Antonio, as a trained musician turned licensed therapist. So, this will be fun. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. uh, so, anything you want to say before we get started? Uh, no, no. I think that a lot of, uh, a lot as we kind of go into a lot of the scenes, mm -hmm. my thoughts will kind of come out and we'll sort of see a little bit mm -hmm. of... You know, a little bit of the vibe, a little bit of... It, it is a very... It is very artistic. It's it is. Artistic I, I love this film. Yeah, it's it's very different from a typical, like, Hollywood Western film mm -hmm. kind it's refreshing. of... Refreshing. Um, it, yeah. it is. It's a very different approach to storytelling, too. Mm -hmm. A lot of soft world building, which is very unusual, especially for kind of what we were grown up with. But mm -hmm. I'm excited. And my first, my first scene is the initial scene when Jihiro meets Haku on the bridge. And uh, this cue that Joe Hisaishi wrote is called the Dragon Boy. At least mm -hmm. that's what it says on the album when translated to English. Um, and I just love this piece of music. This is when I first started as a composer. I devoured his soundtracks over and over and over again. In fact, I think there was like two or three years running where Spotify, like the end of year wrap up, mm -hmm. told me that I was like in the top 0.01% of his <laughs> listeners. Because <laughs> I'd listen to it all day and then I'd just leave it playing on my phone as I slept. That's how I would fall asleep was listening to his music all night long. Mm -hmm. And this was one of the pieces I kept coming back to over and over again that I was just entranced by. And I think now that I'm a little bit more older, a little more experienced, I understand a bit more why. Mm -hmm. And this piece is just a beautiful, beautiful example of how to score tension, a bit of anxiety and panic, without getting too atonal or too experimental with it. So it's still a very melodic, very beautiful piece. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it before we even listen to it. But let's <laughs> watch this scene, and then we can uh, talk about it. So we've got our super high-tech earbuds mm -hmm. and let's just get started
You shouldn't be here. Get out of here, now! What? It's almost night. Leave before it gets dark. They're lighting the lamps. Get out of here! You've got to get across the river. Go! I'll distract them! Dios quiere. One day I want to write a score like this. All right, this is like my bucket. I, two things. I want to. I want to go to a concert with Joe Hisaishi, and I want to write music like this. This is like two things I could die happy doing. Um, but a couple things, like little anecdotes, because I have to go on a tangent before we dive into things. Absolutely. Is the very <laughs> first time I ever saw this movie was in like 2000, 2001. Like shortly after it had just come out, I was so like what five or six, mm-hmm. and the pigs terrified me. Yes. All right, because I remember my family was super excited to get this because my parents had gone out when we were being babysat, and we had won a bet with the babysitter. The babysitter had said that she bet none of us could eat a tablespoon of mustard. <laughs> it's a different time. Well, it was a different very time. different time. <laughs> and she had bet, because we were always playing around with her, and she had bet that none of us could eat a tablespoon of mustard and keep it down. Mm-hmm. And my sister Veronica had done it. She'd eaten it. It was years before she could have mustard again. Uh, it was nasty, but we had won. And the prize was a uh, bottle of Fago, like cream soda, mm. which I'd never had and I was super excited about. Yep. Uh, a bag of Doritos, which we never had. So again, mm. super excited about it. And three was a movie that none of us had seen. A new release. Those are the big things. Remember in the early 2000s when you went, went, would had to rent films. The right. new releases were huge. Mm-hmm. So we were going to get a new release. And this time it was spirited away. Remember we got like however many minutes into film. It's like what? 10 minutes into the film with the pigs Barely appear. Even. Oh, I was traumatized. <laughs> I was terrified. The parents had turned into pigs and I didn't know what to make of it. Terrified, and I couldn't watch the movie. So <laughs> everybody missed out on the movie portion because of me. But like, no. Um, now I love this film. Mm-hmm. And this is one of my favorite pieces. I'm getting really geeked out just kind of listening to it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's such a wonderful kind of masterclass of portraying tension and kind mm-hmm. of panic and anxiety without becoming a musical without becoming unpleasant to listen to. Right. So a couple of ways that it does it is if we've talked about this channel before, my approach to music and emotions is four things. All right. You've got to get the mood right, how dark or how bright your emotion is. 
You've got to get the size right, which is basically how overwhelming is the emotional experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to get matched the size of your instrumentation with that. And then the amount of movement has to do with how energizing or how physically expressive the emotion is. Right. And the fourth one being kind of musical gesture, musical metaphors that you do with the music. Those are the four ingredients needed to create really beautiful kind of emotional music. Mm-hmm. And there are just so many different things going on in here. But a big one with kind of the anxiety and the panic is this idea of your thoughts going a mile a minute. All right, mm-hmm. your thoughts are going everywhere. You're, you've got one running thought. You've got one kind of focus. And for Chihiro, it's get back to the parents and get out of here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you're constantly a kind of hyper aware of the things around you. Mm-hmm. All right, at least in my experience of like panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had a couple of panic attacks in my <laughs> life. Not fun. Yeah. And for me, at least... Very common. Yes. Yeah, very common. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Uh, and at least in my experience, it's been very much like a fight or flight experience. Mm-hmm. And the few times I can remember a couple times where I'm walking and I'm just got, I can feel an anxiety attack coming. And then when the full-blown panic attack comes, I just have an overwhelming feeling that I'm not safe. Mm-hmm. All right. Something is out there. It's coming to get me and I need to split. So I've had those kind of experiences, not fun. And when you have that kind of experience, again, speaking from my view, mm-hmm. you're kind of hyper aware of like, what was that? What was that? What's over here? What's going on all around me kind of thing. And the way that Joe Hisaishi captures this with the music, he does it brilliantly at the beginning by offering two of like the most powerful forms of contrast you can have. And the most powerful being timbre and register. So timbre, uh, let's start with register first. This piece starts out in the piano and flutes, very mm-hmm. high register. And all we have is high register stuff, kind of moving little ostinatos motifs up here. Yeah. And then right when we see Haku start to use magic or something, we realize something's not right. This is not the world we thought it was. That's when the heavy brass come in, in the low register. Mm. So you've got high register and low register, nothing in between. So you have this gap, this hole in the music. And the contrast of like the woodwinds and piano, the high register and the low brass, very different sounds in very different registers it creates a ton of tension. And this has been something that's kind of been recognized for at least 100 or 200 years because it's a very common tool in concert music to create tension is to use your high register and your low register, but nothing or very little in between. Those, that's a very common tool. So if, yeah, that's a very cool thing if you guys want to try it. Next time you want a lot of tension or kind of power and anxiety in your music, try introducing the high end Nothing in between. So let's say like flutes or piano above C5. So comfortably an octave or more above middle C. And then after you've done that up for a while, introduce some powerful brass instruments, an octave or lower below middle C. It's going to give you a really cool impact. Mm-hmm. And then once he sets the tone with that to kind of create this feeling of like tension and high energy, the cool kind of thing about uh, Chihiro running through the street trying to find her parents and kind of panicking and we're seeing this world come to life around us and realizing, oh, this is not, this is not a theme park. This is not what we thought it was. There's something supernatural going around here. And you see spirits, you see shops running over. Mm-hmm. And every time there's something new to look at, the foreground changes. There's a new motif that appears, a new instrument that plays around. And it's bouncing around the orchestra. Different instruments, different sections are playing motifs. And it's constantly building energy, constantly building rhythmic ideas. But every couple measures, every couple beats or so, a new idea takes the front load. It's kind of like we talked about incremental complexity with mm-hmm. Interstellar, which I don't know if that video is being released yet. I think that one's number three. Mm-hmm. But we already filmed it. But this idea of, inter, uh, of incremental complexity, the idea of you introduce one idea, 
you get familiar with that, and then instead of developing it, you just introduce a new idea on top of it. You keep right. adding layers. And that's just this beautiful kind of strategy, this tapestry of new chaotic ideas entering here and there that builds this tension and builds, kind of keeps this musical metaphor mm-hmm. of constantly having things all around you pop up and appear and demand your attention. I'm kind of going on a tangent here. I feel like I'm talking very fast. But I just love this piece. Mm-hmm. And it works so well. Um, and at the risk of kind of over-talking about it, what, what, uh, do you have any notes about this? Yeah, no, it's fun for sure. Um, we were talking briefly, briefly before we were kind of, you know, yeah. sort of exploring some of the themes. And um, the, the, the word dysphoria kept coming up. And dysphoria basically means like really high contrast in psychology yep. and uh, ish. They feel um, like it doesn't belong. Yeah, it doesn't belong. Exactly. And, and, and I think that and I had something and I like lost it and it was going to be like really inspiring, but it was having to do, it was having to do with that, um, with, you know, kind of talking about this, but it was, oh, it was kind of touching on something that I noticed in this throughout the film, but in this yep. scene in particular, uh, is like the fact that like, you know, what creates this sort of like horrific kind of like surreal vibe and it, cause it's like surreal. I think surreal yeah. was the word that I oh, was very like much missing yeah. because you know, Chihiro is like trying, you know, she goes back and she, you know, we're starting to see like the spirits come out and we're not, we're not quite understanding everything. And, and, you know, this is all very new to us. It's very new to her. And, but the music felt to me like it was such a contrast of what was going on. Because if you like run through this scene without the music, like your brain is going to put something there, probably totally different. Yeah. I mean, it depends on like a bajillion factors, but um, in general. (laughs) Oh, that's something that we're going to be. Yeah, that's something we're definitely going to be talking about very soon in a couple of my scenes. That Joe Hisaishi, yeah. usually the conventional wisdom is that the composer is not there to dictate emotions. Mm-hmm. They're not there to tell the, compo- the audience what to feel. It's there to enhance what the audience is already meant to feel. Right. And Joe Hisaishi does the opposite mm-hmm. frequently throughout this film. Where there are completely different emotions in the scene... Yeah. And he just kind of, like you said, dysphoria. He just puts music that normally would not fit. Mm-hmm. But he does it in such a way that it just brings the story to life. It elevates right. the whole thing. And then it makes you aware of emotions that weren't, that you didn't even know were there kind right. of thing. Right. And and this kind of surrealist kind of deal that I'm sort of kind of getting at here is that there are so many more combinations of things that exist than mm-hmm. what we think traditionally, oh, yeah. right? And this is a perfect example of sometimes you got to break the rules to find, you know, to find other right? things that work. And, um, yeah, it was just, it was so weird. Like, and I noticed it in a lot of artistic movies that I've seen as well. They kind of toy with that surreal, Mm -hmm. like, you know, like we're going to, it's almost experimental. It's just like, let's see what happens. Let's just throw this in here and see what happens. That's what it feels like. I don't know if that's the intention. Yeah. Yeah, it's very deliberate. It feels, it's, if it wasn't so effective, you'd almost wonder if they knew what they were doing. Right. But it works Mm -hmm. so well that it's just magical. It's kind of the... When I was, and this isn't the best example, but when I was a kid, my friends were, my sisters were friends with, uh, the one of the friends was like an art major. Mm-hmm. And she was like experimenting with like, the slapping paint on the kind of canvas phase. Uh, and Which I remember, actually can look really cool. Yeah, I was like, it could look cool. But I was thinking, I was like, well, what's <laughs> stopping me from doing that? Right. And she's like, well, the difference is, it's the difference between someone who has spent an exhaustive amount of time studying. Mm-hmm. And can make little nuanced decisions in terms of like what type of paint to use, mm-hmm. what type of canvas to purchase. And they can do things and be aware of the decisions they're making that impact it without really being on the surface level. Right. Versus someone who's just doing something randomly. All right. Mm-hmm. And I personally still <laughs> you don't. You can hear the difference. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's very much the difference. There's a lot of stuff in here 
where you would say, oh, that seems like if you were if an amateur were to do it, you'd say, oh, that's a mistake. There are lots of moments where, like I said, Joe Hisaishi does not seem to be scoring the emotions of the scene. Right. You're like, oh, that's a nice piece of music, but that doesn't really make sense. There are moments where they just kind of copy and paste pieces he wrote and put them throughout. Mm -hmm. Like One Summer's Day is one. One Summer's Day gets repeated like four or five times throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And it's just the one piece. And then there's One Summer's Day reprise, which is at the very end. And there are different things where you're like, man, that that goes against the conventional wisdom. But it's done... Especially that, especially from our very westernized American kind of views of like mm-hmm. the Hollywood exposure, kind of how films are done. But it's just done so deliberately and so beautifully that it has such a wonderful impact. I, I'm having difficulty putting my thoughts to words. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so that was that was my first opening scene. I just wanted to point out, kind of a, geeking out over the music here, about those two kind of devices for creating tension and anxiety in music. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's naturally like the negative harmonies kind of things. But those two things, one starting immediately with that contrast, high register, low register, nothing in between. Then, of course, that gets very boring very fast. It gets very fatiguing on the ear. So he does bring the middle register in first, Mm -hmm. but not before he has that big impact. And then after that, kind of getting the idea, capturing the energy and boosting it by bouncing motifs all over the orchestra. He'll have an idea, and instead of developing it, he'll just put it into the background and introduce a new idea. Mm -hmm. So it's almost almost like this uh, overload of information, this hypersensitivity. Yeah. Um, I think it's great. But, uh, yeah, awesome. So that's what I had to say about it. Good stuff. Um, awesome. Yeah. So what's your first scene? Uh, yeah, so my first scene here, we're going to go ahead and skip a little bit into the movie. Chihiro gets a job. Makes a deal Ooh. with Yubaba. Yubaba. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Quiet down, you're making a racket. hear such a stupid request. You're just a stinking, useless weakling. And this is certainly no place for humans. It's a bathhouse for the spirits. It's where they come to replenish themselves. And you humans always make a mess of things, like your parents who gobbled up the food of the spirits like pigs. They got what they deserved. And you should be punished, too. You could be a piglet, or maybe you'd prefer a lump of coal. I can see you shaking. Actually, I'm impressed you made it this far. But I'm sure you didn't do it on your own. Let's thank whoever helped you. Just who was it, dear? Why don't you tell me? Please, can't you give me a job? Don't start that again. Please, I just want to work. 
Don't say that! Why in the world do you think I should give you a job? Anyone can see you're a lazy, spoiled crybaby and you have no manners. This is a high-class place I'm running here. So there's no job for you. Now get out. I've got all the lazy bums I need. Or maybe I'll give you the most difficult job I've got and work you until you breathe your very last breath. Stop at the arrival of the giant baby. <laughs> the giant baby, uh, yes. Right. She's so mean, too. It's like, man. You Baba? <laughs> yeah. Or the baby? They're both mean. They're both mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Particularly you Baba in this particular right. oh, case. Oh, she's evil. Yep. She's like the uh, Babushka Baba Yaga or something from... Uh, mm -hmm. I remember reading those books when I was a kid. I'm not Russian, but yeah. I remember reading them. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, awesome. So what did you mm -hmm. want to say about this scene? Well... As you can see, there was a very mad. You talk about contrast. There was mm -hmm. a pretty big contrast there. Um, most of it is because I just enjoy watching her fly over there. Yeah. Not <laughs> but um, you know, the big thing that I wanted to kind of talk about is kind of like the sudden sort of nature. Because it, it, along with kind of the rest of this movie, it felt just so weird. <laughs> like so like out there. And, and, it, and it kind of, like, fits into that sort of surrealist mm -hmm. picture. So, you know, and, and then and, and dysphoric, right? So, like, doesn't seem to fit mm -hmm. at the moment. Yeah. Kind of, you know, it is, whoa, surprising. Um, we're looking at this particular scene through the lens of a 10-year-old girl, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is, like, horrifying. I mean, I kind of I said it a little bit before, and you know, it's a repeating kind of deal. Yeah. This is, like, terrifying. You're going in, and you're going to, you know, ask this evil old woman to, like, you know, for a job that you don't really know why you're asking for. Like, you're just kind of told to do it, and you don't really have a choice, but you have to trust. Oh, so, they, they do kind of explain it, though, in mm -hmm. the movie. So, uh, it's well, kind of... Well, but up to yeah. this point, though, right? I don't know. I feel like they I don't have, think they do. I think he told her that he needs to ask for a job. That's like her only hope kind of thing. Yeah, but he, that's all he said. Oh, true. true, true yeah. True, true, true. So that's kind of what I'm saying is it's like we have like this blind faith in this person who seems safe. Yeah. And we're kind of but I mean, like she doesn't really have an alternative. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, yeah, eventually they you, you see the rest. But um, at, at, the, at this point, it's just like, whoa, what is this? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's so weird. Um, everything to kids, and when you're scoring particularly, you know, for the emotions of, like, a child, mm -hmm. it, it can be really powerful to score, like, you know, to kind of take that intensity and raise it up and take it up a few notches. Because... Definitely. Yeah, because we are, I mean, we're little people, right? So, like, we're smaller people when we're, when we're children, and I'm obviously... You know, physically we're smaller, but you know, we the world is much bigger. Yes. That's the contrast. The experiences are newer. So for yeah. example, going off my tangent earlier saying that we had been promised three things, a new movie, Doritos and yep. Cream Soda Fago. Uh Fago is a midwestern regional kind of soda or pop or whatever word you use and where we're from, but mm -hmm. It's a really big deal. And I was super young. I had never had cream soda before. Right. And so that idea of something brand new, the world's bigger. And the experiences are newer. And that, mm -hmm. I love that idea. It's like when you're trying to... We've talked about in previous episode how it's important to score to the emotions of your audience and right. not the characters. And that is important. But mm -hmm. there are still times where you don't want to completely ignore 
yeah. the character's experience. It's all about what works. Exactly. And yeah, if you want your audience to have a heightened experience, you want to put them in the mind of a child, mm -hmm. then the world's a bigger place, like yep. you said. And so the emotions need to be bigger. Right. I mean, how many times have you tried to comfort a kid letting them know that the world is not over because they dropped their ice cream or something? Right. It's like uh, like your nieces and nephews, my little cousins. We got so mm -hmm. many like kids. They see the world bigger. Mm -hmm. Emotions are bigger. And so best way to kind of... Well, a, I wouldn't say the best way, but a great way to kind of portray that musically is to really enhance the emotions. I really yeah. like that. That's yeah. A, yeah. Pull the intensity up. And really, you know, it, it, especially because it's so sudden. And it's nice... As like film scores, right? We can like we we have like the source material to sort of attach yep. it to. So we have a picture, or we you know some level of inspiration. We don't have to just like spontaneously create yeah. it. So it makes it even easier for this one because you know <laughs> without you Baba sort of freaking out and getting all yep. big and you know out of nowhere, then this wouldn't really have made sense. Right? Yep. So I mean, it kind of still doesn't. But well, it's not the music that doesn't make sense. It's just kind of the reactions. But that's no. because that's because I'm a human and you Baba's not. So. I don't think so. I think because, again, this is kind of, I think this is one of the disadvantages of this being the very first time you've seen the film. Mm -hmm. So we understand why Yubaba's upset. Mm -hmm. So we understand that the spirits do not like humans. Yeah. All right. This is a kind of a running theme. We, we get the sentiment at this point. Yeah. yeah. But it's like someone who's like, I've watched a bunch of Studio Ghibli movies. That's often a running theme. Mm -hmm. It's like, for yeah, example, like <laughs> in Princess Mononoke, a big thing is like the spirits think the world would be better off without humans. Yeah. Humans think the world would be better off without spirits. And of course, the story is supposed to be actually no, you need both of them kind mm -hmm. of thing. And here we have another very similar thing where we see the spirits don't like the humans. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know if you chose the stink spirit scene or not. I did not, but that's uh, basically. Oh yeah. So basically, for those of you who haven't seen the movie or are listening, I just need a reminder. There is a scene where a stink spirit comes into the spa, and it's this disgusting, gloopy awful thing and everybody they don't want it mm -hmm. but they they can't say no to a customer so he comes through mm -hmm. and then you find out that it was actually not a stink spirit it was a very ancient and old and powerful river spirit but mm -hmm. the river had become so polluted that it had forced its it had changed its form and so they clean it they fix it and it's good so there's a lot of kind of showing throughout the story that the spirits do not like humans mm -hmm. especially when Chihiro gets her job and is walking around and they're and everyone's like I don't want her with me don't put her on this and she'll get her stink all over the place. So they don't, the spirits don't like humans. That's the big takeaway here. And what we learn is that they want to get rid of Chihiro. But it's a throwaway line. If you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. Yubaba mentions that she's annoyed that she had at one point made a promise to give a job to anyone who asks. Mm. So that's why Yubaba is ticked off. All right. Oh, okay. They don't and want And she said that up to this point? No, she says it shortly after. Oh, so that's kind of what you're talking about, like having to trust Haku. Haku said, mm -hmm. the, you have to get straight to her. You cannot get sidetracked. Like, basically, the other spirits are not going to like you. Get to you, Baba, and mm -hmm. ask her for a job. That's okay. the only way that Chihiro will be safe. Because mm -hmm. if not, they mention, there are moments where they mention eating Chihiro, about uh, turning her into a pig, turning into mm -hmm. a coal. There are a lot of things where they just don't want a human in this spa for the spirits. Right. And Yubaba made a promise at one point that anyone who asks for a job is going to get one. Mm -hmm. And so now that Chihiro has asked for a job, that's why Yubaba is really angry. She mm -hmm. doesn't want Chihiro there. 
But now she's realizing because of her promise, she is going to be forced to keep Chihiro. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't understand like the rules behind it. Studio Ghibli is very famous for soft world building, meaning that there are rules and elements that never get explored. Mm -hmm. We don't get all of our questions answered. So it can be assumed, I'm guessing, that Yubaba's a witch. She made a promise. There's probably something magically binding about that. Yeah. All right. So that's why Yubaba's very angry. She didn't want this human here, let alone a little girl. And yet... Now she's stuck hiring this little girl to work at her high-end business, her spa for the spirits. Hey, I mean, she said it. Right? It is what it is. It is what it is. It is, what it is. And either way, yeah. you know, the whole, uh, you know, just the whole, it's just so, it's just so sudden. It's just so big. It's just this, like, it's like a caricature. Of right? Like, oh, I love it. I love it. Like the emotion that's oh, yeah. being portrayed. Yubaba so. is a very weird looking character. Too. Yep. Giant head, huge nose. Mm -hmm. But no, I love it. Yeah, I, I kind of went on a tangent there. They're kind of explaining the context. But mm -hmm. no, yeah, I really enjoy like the intensity of the music in that scene. And it does, it does come off very kind of large, but I love it because I hadn't thought of that. That mm -hmm. point you made about viewing it through the world of a child. Yeah. And so if we want our audience to view it through the world of a child, we've got to go basically go big or go Sometimes home we gotta go right yeah i love that i i had not thought of that i really mm -hmm. like that yeah i kind of want to experiment with it now because <laughs> uh it is weird and i think it's also made more impactful that there's no music mm -hmm. before yubaba freaks out then when yubaba freaks out that's when the music enters and it gets mm -hmm. all bigger than life and everything right but it's really cool i really like that awesome i had not <laughs> thought of that i'm kind of kicking myself that's I'm just kind of geeking out over that. The idea of like, <laughs> if you want to, like just enhancing the emotions beyond mm -hmm. what you would expect. Uh, almost like being melodramatic. The melodrama right. of youth. Right. I love it. Yeah. Right. Try the same with the big bucks. Yeah. What we do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So is there uh, anything else you wanted to say about this? About this one? No. No, that was pretty much it. It was, just, it was the intensity and it was really... Um, yeah, it was the intensity and it was kind of viewing it through the eyes of a yeah. child. So I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. So finally, for my scene, we will finally address the ubiquitous One Summer's Day. Mm -hmm. However, I'm not going with the opening scene. Mm. So One Summer's Day, super famous cue, lots of people. This piece of music is the kind of their introduction to Joe Uh This is the music. Mine was actually not. Mine was The Girl Who Fell From The Sky from Laputa, Castle in the Sky. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, but beautiful piece of music. That was my introduction. But this is this is the kind of music everybody associates with Studio Ghibli. Um, and the scene that we are going to watch and listen to is actually much further in the film. So we're going to be jumping almost towards the end of the film. But it's when Chihiro has just saved Haku. She uh, gave him the medicine from the river spirit. Mm -hmm. He just coughed up that seal. And now she's decided she needs to take the seal back to... Uh, Zaniba, Yubaba's sister, which I really hope everybody listening or watching at home has seen this film because <laughs> if not, they're kind of all over the place. But still, yeah. there's if you haven't, stay tuned. There's going to be a lot of cool stuff we can talk about. Probably a good rule of thumb, watch the films that we're talking about before, oh, oops, <laughs> before you listen. <laughs> Started the film. Poor Haku. He's had it hard ever since he got here. He just showed up out of nowhere, just like you did. But he got mixed up with Yubaba and took a job as her apprentice. I warned him that it was too dangerous. Just quit. Go back home, I told him. But he said for some reason he had no home to return to. Once Yubaba got control over him, his face turned pale and his eyes turned steely. 
He's never been the same. Kamaji, what if I take the gold seal back to Zaniba? I could give back the seal and apologize to her for Aku. Can you tell me where Zaniba lives? You'd go to Zaniba's? It might help, but she's one dangerous witch. Please? Aku helped me before. Now I want to help him. I know how you can get there, but you'll have to get back on your own. Wait here. Everyone, I need oh. my shoes and clothes, please. Um, I guess my parents will have to wait. Zen, I've looked everywhere for you. Everywhere. What's going on here? Who are those guys? I picked up some new friends. See? Everyone's looking for you. Yubaba is furious. Huh? The guy with all the gold turned out to be a monster called No Face. And he says that you led him into the bathhouse. I did let him in. Are you serious? Yeah, I thought he was a customer. What? He's a monster. He's already swallowed three people. Round it. Here it is, Sen. <laughs> hey, we're busy, Boiler Man. You can use this. You've got train tickets? Uh, how did you get a hold of them? I've been saving them for 40 years. Now listen carefully. The train stop you want is called Swamp Bottom. Swamp Bottom? That's where Zaniba lives, the sixth stop. Sixth stop. Make sure you get it right. The train used to run in both directions, but these days it's a one-way ride. You still want to go? Yep, I'll walk back along the tracks. Sen, what about No Face? I'll take care of that now. Haku, I'll be back soon. Just hold on. What's going on? Something you wouldn't recognize. It's called love. Okay, we'll stop there. Oh, such a beautiful scene. And I love this scene so much because of the things that it's not. All right, so a little context for the people who are watching or just listening to at home. If you haven't seen the film or if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, so what's happened is Haku is a spirit who is the apprentice of Yubaba, the witch that we just met. Um, and what the Boiler Man was saying is that since he's come there, and become her apprentice. He's basically had enchantments put on him. He's lost his freedom, all right? And he's had like his heart sealed away. He's, all kinds of terrible things have happened to him. And he's basically enslaved to Yubaba. Now, Haku was the first and only spirit who started out wanting to help Jihiro. She's made friends since then, but the only spirit who saw her and wanted to help her from the beginning was Haku. So he's the one that told her to try to get a job from Yubaba in the first place. So, Obviously, there's this friendship, there's this love between them. And there's this scene where Haku, as part of his jobs with Yubaba, was forced to go against Yubaba's twin sister, a very powerful witch, to steal a very powerful magical artifact from her, her golden seal. He stole it, and now he's almost dead because of it, because of the after effects of the fight, but from being chased, and just from the powerful magic placed on the seal. So he's dying. The only way to save him is to try to go back to Yubaba, return the seal, and, or not Yubaba, Zaniba, to go back to Zaniba and ask for her to remove this spell and kind of save him and all that. So we've got a couple things going on. We've got Haku, 
or not Haku, uh, Chihiro, now called Sen, because she mm. forfeited, forfeited her name when she started working for Yubaba. Sen now has to travel one way in the spirit world to the lair of an evil witch, Zaniba. All right, that's what we know at this point. That's a very big journey, all right? And on top of that, we have a monster that Sen accidentally let into the spa, going crazy, eating people, causing all kinds of trouble, and demanding to see her. And Yubaba wants her to go see the monster. So we've got a monster, which could very much be terrifying music. We could have the journey to Zaniba, which could very easily be a heroic or kind of beginning of a journey theme, or again, scary and uh, kind of high tension. But we don't get any of that. We don't get the hero theme. We don't get the journey theme. We don't get the uh, the antagonist theme. What we get is One Summer's Day. Mm -hmm. This beautiful kind of love theme. All right, This nostalgic, um, kind of weird, ambiguous kind of music. Lots of people love, they, they get introduced to anime music through Studio Ghibli, and they think that one of the tech, uh, signature sounds of anime music is nostalgia. Mm -hmm. All right, I get that question so often. I've done many videos on it. I've talked about writing uh, nostalgic romance music, writing nostalgic music. I've done a whole playlist of videos where I studied different pieces of Studio Ghibli music and created a template for people that they can use to write this kind of music. Um, and it's this beautiful kind of unexpected sound we have playing underneath all of this. Mm -hmm. All right, again, this scene, this is classic hero's journey. All right, but we don't hear a heroic theme. This is a, a classic going up against the villain moment in the story, and there's no going up against the villain kind of music. Mm -hmm. And let me check out my notes, because I know there was a point I wanted to make here. Um, oh, yeah, so this is just kind of a masterful kind of example of what we were talking about earlier, about dysphoria, that beautiful word you use, the idea of music or things that just don't fit or they feel mm -hmm. out of place. And yet, despite... Being feeling out of place, it feels right. Right. So this is again kind of earlier. I talked about how one of the most important roles of the composer is to avoid dictating emotions to the audience. The composer is not there to tell the audience what they're supposed to feel. They're there to just enhance what they're already meant to feel. Mm -hmm. This is a very different experience. All right. Joe Hisaishi is going against that grain. He's very much saying, no, 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 no. These are the emotions of the scene, but I want you to go deeper. I want you to not just see what's happening on screen. I want you to be aware of the motivation behind right. the scene. Why? Why is Sen going up against Zaniba? Why is Sen willing to go up against No-Face? It's because she loves her friend. She loves Haku, and she needs to save him. And that motivation, that is what Johi Saishi is scoring here. Mm -hmm. That's what he wants the audience to be aware of, is this deep kind of love between these characters. Because that's a running theme throughout Spirited Away, is this idea that loving and caring for people is a necessary part of maturing. When we first meet Chihiro at the beginning, she's kind of gloomy, she's angry, they moved away, they, she's not gonna be with her friends, she's not happy about it, and she's clinging to her parents everywhere she goes, uh, just kind of follows, doesn't wanna do anything, just kind of moody, toddler mm -hmm. kind of thing, like not toddler, but a kid, like a preteen. And as the film goes on, we watch her become more independent, more mature, and instead of clinging to her loved ones, being the one to walk ahead, the one to take risks and face challenges head on yeah. to help the people she loves. That's a beautiful kind of sign of maturing and growing and developing as a character. Mm -hmm. And that's what the music is telling us about. That's what the music in this scene is kind of scoring or following along is not so much look at what she's doing, but look at how far she's come. 
Right. All right. This is no longer the scared, timid, kind of moody character we met at the beginning. This is now much more of a selfless, kind of loving, brave character. Mm-hmm. I just love that. I love... It's one of the things where you wouldn't expect that to work. And yet yeah. it just does. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it kind of comes back to sort of like if it makes sense, it can work. Right. Right. Um, one thing about emotions, right, and, and I think we intuitively know this, and I think, I think most people intuitively know this, yeah. um, emotions are like onions, are like ogres. They have layers. <laughs> Bring you a Shrek reference? In? I just brought a Shrek reference in. Emotions are like, they have layers, right? Um, you know, sorry, early 2000s kids. Yeah. Uh, you know, emotions, emotions have layers. We gotta do Shrek. We should do We're going to do Shrek number two. That would be cool. That oh, would be cool. I know what scene I'm going with. <laughs> you know, we're not going to get into the controversy of the fact that I haven't seen that yet. What? Um, yep. Told you we're not going to get into it. We'll get into it afterwards. <laughs> I think you know a person. Yep. All right. Anyway, like me you. and like Shrek and like emotions, you know, emotions mm-hmm. have, have layers. Um, you know, there's a, there's a complexity to them, yeah. right? So there's underneath what we kind of see here as like, like I said, there's like this, like, this should be scary. You yeah. know, there's a lot of things happening. There should be like, okay, you know, Chihiro can have this, this vibe of like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to get stuff done. I'm going to go, you know, you know, kind of like walk to the tune of my beat and get my, yep. you know, do what I got to do. But underneath that, what's the reason that we're doing that? And it's because she loves her, you know, because she loves, uh, you know, her friends. And she has this, you know, this piece of her that's been developed throughout the movie. And, yeah, it it kind of like, it's sort of like the found, I don't know if you could call it the foundation. But it's like a foundational, like, piece to what we see. So, what we see isn't everything. I love that. And that's that's a question I get a lot, too. Because I do live streams and stuff. And I taught a class on film scoring with the indie film music contest. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the questions I get are like, all right, so we always hear, like in film school or, school or books or just YouTube or whatever, people say, go beneath the surface. And right. yet, one of the most maddening things is not knowing how to go deeper than the surface, not knowing mm-hmm. how to score anything other than what you see. Right. And we covered one of them in our last episode, Prisoner of Azkaban, mm-hmm. and that was kind of like understanding what changes happen to your character. How is the character at the beginning of the film, and how are they at the end? How are they different? And then just marking the different important moments throughout the story where that change happens. Mm-hmm. Where, like, what are the plot beat points? What are the moments in the story where that character is able to grow and change, right. for better or for worse? Now, another one is just kind of this beautiful idea that we're kind of dancing around right now, is this concept of going literally beneath the surface. Not just what is happening, but why is it happening? What is the motivation? And like you were saying, it's like, yeah, Chihiro is about to go on this hero's journey. She's about to go against the evil witch Zaniba, so far as we know. Um, and there's no face and all this kind of monsters going around. There's all these dangers in a hostile environment. Mm-hmm. And there's all kinds of things you could score to the surface. And they would work. A hero's theme would work here. A high-tension, scary theme would work here. But what makes it brilliant and beautiful is ignoring that surface level and trying to find out why is she going against this. And not just... Not just story-wise. You could say, why is she going at this? Because Yubaba's ordering her to go mm-hmm. and face no face. Or why is she helping Haku? Because she has to help Haku. She's his only ally kind of thing. Right. Um, but no, it's, it's the motivation. Why does the character want to do this? Why is the character willing to do this? Mm-hmm. And if you can find that out in lots of these emotional scenes, a lot of these key moments, if you can go deeper and ask yourself, why is the character willing to do this? What is their motivation to actually go along with the story? Because they ultimately do. 
this this is the path set in stone for the story. So there's got to be a reason. If it's a well-written story, there is a reason why the character is willing to do this and didn't diverge in a different direction other than just plot. Yeah. And if you can figure that out, it's going to give you a wealthy resource of emotions to enhance and score with your music. Mm-hmm. And that's just one of the reasons why I love this scene. Because uh, I think it's one of my favorite uses of this theme. Because there are so many uses of this theme. Arguably the very first one is the most beautiful scenically. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one right after where she found her parents after they've been cursed. And he took her to the pig pen to see them and recognize them. That's another great use. But this one is my favorite. Yeah. I think just because of the contrast. That dysphoria. I love that mm-hmm. word. I love that you brought that up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the dysphoria of it. Yeah, on surface level, it doesn't fit. You would wonder, why does that work? But it just does. Right. right? And that's kind of the reasoning why. It's going it's a layer deeper, a layer mm-hmm. too deeper. Awesome. I'm, I'm sorry. I am still thrown that you haven't seen Trek Two. I'm full of surprises. I mean, <laughs> I mean we've we've had like movie nights where we watch the the clips on YouTube and yep, never seen it. Oh yep, my word! Never actually sat down right. and seen it. Well, we're doing that. I'm swapping out one of my movies on the list, <laughs> and we're gonna do that movie now. Hey, works for um, me. Anywho, so yeah, awesome. What's your next scene? My next scene, we are going to backtrack a little bit, and we're going to go out to the bridge, and we're going to look at the moon. Not the bridge, the balcony. The balcony. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. We're yep. go to the balcony scene. The first instance that we hear of another one of my favorite cues, Sixth yes. Station. Mm-hmm. All right, awesome. Let's do this. like a sea. What'd you expect after all that rain? I've got to get out of this place. Someday I'm getting on that train. And this is one of my favorite pieces of music, so I'm, I've said that a lot, but this film, yeah, I'm going to let you talk. Yeah, this is some good stuff. I, I should learn how to play that one, actually. I've got the sheet music. Yeah, I should check that out. Um, the big theme here that I wanted to kind of touch on is nostalgia. Mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of break... I know we've talked about it, obviously, like mm-hmm. this is a very nostalgic movie, um, but from my perspective, I will give you my perspective. So nostalgia... Um, in general, it's it's a really confusing emotion. Oh, yes. It's a really confusing emotion because there's a lot of components to it. So what do we feel? Like, so for me, the best way to kind of, and we kind of use it in the emotion tool. I mean, like, because I, yeah. I helped develop, like, the first kind of yep. couple of versions of it. I remember that was so, a lot of fun. Yeah, it well, was. Because uh, for those of you who uh, maybe might be new to the channel, like, my approach of teaching emotion, like, valence, mood, size, uh, and uh, gesture. That's like kind of like the newest variation of a tool I've been developing for about two years about now. Years. Yeah. Um, and it started out with a lot of frustration. I was studying with Berkeley, mm-hmm. and they were saying like, oh yeah, if you want to learn how to pr- do a character theme, study the characters, here you go. Yep. If you want to learn how to write a world theme, start by studying the world. And then you want to write sad music? All right, here's a template. 
I was, this is sad, but I, got, I was so frustrated by that. Because especially after six years of studying psychology and therapy, I was like, there's, there's more to it than there's that. a lot more to it. And so I remember starting out as a conversation. You and I were talking. I was like, you know, there are all these tools developed for and by therapists mm -hmm. to help clients and patients who just have difficulty understanding their own emotions. Right. So what if we took these tools and found a way to adapt them for musicians who want to learn how to portray emotions with music? So the first tool came about after like it was like a late night where we ate Chinese food and drank some beers. Yep. And we just we had because we had spent like a couple of weeks together, each of us just like compiling lit reviews. Every every peer reviewed article we could find. It was a time um, to be alive. It was so much fun. <laughs> I missed that stuff. Yep. But it was just, we were nerding out over all these different like peer reviewed articles and research papers about understanding emotions. And we just kind of sat down. We went through the, well, all the papers together. We highlighted parts that we thought were useful. And then we just kind of compiled the first tool, mm -hmm. uh, which that first tool is still available on my website. Oh, uh, and that's like, basically yeah. like the, it's called like the, uh, it's like the musical storyteller, portraying characters, emotions, and worlds with stories, mm -hmm. with music. Um, so you can still purchase that. Check it out. Uh, but the most, uh, most recent up-to-date version is in my class. And, uh, um, but no, I remember like nostalgia was an emotion that gave us particular like difficulty. Yeah. Uh, it's because it is so, con it's conflicting. There's so much ambiguity. And, and that's because they're supposed to be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and I think that that's kind of really displayed well here. So nostalgia, what, what is it that I wrote? That's what it was. So it's like this sad... It's like this kind of like sadness and like almost grieving type situation, yearning type situation, plus hope is kind of Ooh. what I got. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'll change my mind as I'm talking about it, but that's kind of like what struck me when I was listening to this and thinking about it. It's like, what is nostalgia? Because even with my patients, like I can't really describe the feeling. It's just kind of like... I love that. I've always described yeah. it as like a mix of like, like, like happy and sad. But I love that. It's because there's, there's another emotion called Avanoir, or however it's pronounced, which is the idea of like a nostalgia for a time you haven't had yet, like a, a yearning yeah. for a future you haven't experienced yet. Right. And there is that. There's like there's like a mix of like sadness and loss, but there's hope and yearning involved. That makes it such yeah. a complex, delicious emotion. It, it is, and it's very... There's a lot of space, I feel mm -hmm. like. And, and that's kind of how I'll like describe, you know, emotions in particular is like, Every other way except for like the emotion, right? Yeah. So every because because that's what they are. Like we we experience emotions based on our perception. Yeah. Um. So without getting too far into that, um. Whenever I think of like nostalgia, so in in contexts where I've created like different like stories and worlds yeah. and stuff like that in the past, nostalgia is always marked by a golden veil that I kind of like place Ooh. on the space. So yeah. it's a spatial thing for me. Um, and that's why I like this scene in particular, because we don't notice the music starting until the space gets revealed. And so everything kind of, you know, the lights behind us, the here and now, and actually this is a really interesting thing that I'm just noticing. The here and now is black. The yeah. here and now is not necessarily important. What's important is out there. Yeah. But we're here and there's a lot of space there. There's even that kind of like railing keeping them separated from it. There is, exactly, yeah. Because you can, you can look... And you can kind of like contemplate, but you can't actually go and experience yeah. it. And I think musically, the thing that particularly stood out to me was that the motif actually kind of did that. Yeah. You know, do, 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 do. And then mm. it stops. Yeah. And you're kind of like, what's next? You know, yeah. and then it keeps kind of doing that, keeps kind of repeating. And it's kind of got this like, it's kind of got this like nice back and forth. It's, it, 
It's not tension. I wouldn't say it's tension. It's like... I don't know. I use it a lot in some of the things that I've written. I'm actually... And it feels... It, I can't really... I don't know how to describe it, really. But it feels like there should be, like, more, but there's not. But that's a good thing. I'm so, okay with yeah, that. It's, uh, it's, it's like, called a pregnant silence. Or pregnant pause. Pregnant pause? Yes. So there's a moment of silence. But it feels like there's more to come. Yeah. That's very common in film music. Uh, it's very common in all music in general. Right. Is when right. you've got all these tools building momentum, building energy, and saying there's more to come, mm-hmm. and then it stops. So, for example, we've got the keyboard set up here. All right. So let's yeah. try some chords real quick. Oh, this no, one's wrong one. <laughs> all right. So if so, if I were to do this, C major, and then F major, and then we were to do G dominant seven, I just stopped. Mm-hmm. That's a pregnant silence because. This doesn't want to stop. This wants to go to yeah. that, all right? Yeah. So a pregnant silence is something that builds and builds, or there's something, there's just a feeling of incompleteness. Right. All right, a desire to keep going. And this motif that Joe Hisaishi has created with the bum ba dum 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 I'm going to explain that in a bit, because I picked actually same music, different scene. Different scene. And we're going to go into the music theory about that. So I am going to teach you how to like write a bit of nostalgia here. I'm super excited stuff. for that. Fun stuff. Because um, <laughs> that's what got me into film music in the first place, was mm-hmm. this music. Um, and there really is. It's that kind of like pregnant silence, that desire that there's more to come. There's still something in the future. And this, at the same time, this sense of ambiguity, harmonically mm-hmm. speaking, because the harmonies are very interesting in this piece uh, using extended harmonies. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off a bit because I want to hear yeah. what you have to say about the emotion side of ex- understanding yeah. and nostalgia before I start talking about the musical side of it. For sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that that's a big piece of it is, is the, it, there's a space there. Yeah. And what has to fill the space? Hope has to fill that space. Ooh. So, again, when we're looking at kind of trying to create these emotions, we have to look at multiple different dimensions, multiple different perceptions. Right. We have the auditory perception. Like, yeah. intuitively, as composers, you have that. Like, you know, you, you have some sense of that. What we need to start incorporating is a more holistic experience if we want to yep. be able to truly capture what we're trying to capture. Holistic meaning? Like, more than just, more, more than simply, I should say, um, more than simply, like, your intuition on how something should sound. Yeah. So, so yeah. as composers, we're really good at, you know, we're really good at, you know, creating sounds and making sounds and manipulating them and making them say what we want them to say. Yeah. But sometimes it can be really, really powerful to include other things. So what would the sound look like? What would the sound, I mean, <laughs> what would the sound taste like? You know, there are, you're going to have to score scenes where people are eating. That's actually you know? a tool. <laughs> this is kind of weird. That's, that's actually a tool. I don't think you knew this because it's part of like the new emotion tool. Oh. But it's called like sensory description. So I've talked about creating musical gestures, musical metaphors, and that's how you take a mood and turn it into an emotion. Mm-hmm. But one of the strongest tools you can get is to start with your five senses and think yeah. about what emotion are you trying to target and go through your five senses. What do you see as you're experiencing this emotion? What do you feel? What do you taste? What do you smell? And of course, things like taste and smell, you're not always going to have something in mind for an emotional experience. But what I have found in my experience of using this tool is that the idea of smell or like taste gets you really focused on how you're breathing. Mm -hmm. All right? And just kind of your experience of the world. So you're trying to get the experience of the world around you and what it's like to experience that emotion because when you can describe like a setting or a specific experience of an emotion, mm-hmm. that's where you can start to get specific ideas for inspiration. So I, in my class, I use the example of like a yeah. mild bit of anxiety, getting a text message from someone you're trying to avoid. 
because when I was working on the class, I got a text message from someone I was trying to avoid. Fun stuff. And so I was like, ah, oh, that threw me off. And so I'm just kind of looking around. So I just kind of, I was like, all right, that's awesome. Let's do this. So I was like, what do I see? He's like, well, my eyes are going all over the place. I'll work, but then I'll look at the ceiling. I'll look down. I'll scratch my arm. I'll look down. And so I was like, all right, so my eyes are bouncing all over the place. One, that's one example. And so when you're trying to portray a musical kind of uh, metaphor, if I wanted to use that, my eyes bouncing all over, I can't focus on one thing while I'm a little anxious. Mm -hmm. You can take the foreground, your melody, and bounce it around to different instruments. No instrument is long enough to truly play the full phrase, but it bounces around and it kind of captures that idea of the inability to focus. You've still got Mm. one melody going through, but it's being bounced around. And that would be an idea of a musical gesture, taking a specific experience of an emotion and finding a way to portray it musically. And so I love that you brought up those senses. Because, yeah, there's, there are lots of ways that you can kind of explore. Even, like, you wouldn't think of taste or you wouldn't. or smell as being part of music, but it can be an important source of inspiration. Yeah. And I also want to kind of inject a couple more things in here. Yeah. Um, a couple more ideas, which I think might be helpful, especially since you have a sensory... I didn't know you had a sensory piece in the, in the tool. That's cool. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give you three more senses that we have. Ooh. So we don't actually just have five. We have eight. We do have eight. I'll be the judge of that. Yeah. So the first one is kind of what you described, introception. So it's your ability to experience your body. Okay. So it's your, you know, your breathing, your heartbeat. If you, if you kind of go quiet for a second, you know, your body starts to come alive and you can start Mm -hmm. to kind of hear some of the processes depending on that. Everybody has variable, you know, abilities with the, not ability, but everybody has like. Self-awareness of your body functioning. Yeah. It's like, it's, you know, some people have more access to it than others. All right. Um, I'll allow it. Yep. (laughs) What's number seven? Yep. So there's that. There is proprioception, which is your body in space. So could be used in a really nice, or you could kind of use it for this scene as well. Um, and a little bit of, you know, I think probably a little bit throughout the movie is that, you know, Chihiro is such a small person in a big world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where is she in, rela- in relations to everything? That's true, because the train station basically lets us know that this spirit world isn't just the bathhouse. Yeah. That it stretches. It stretches yeah. beyond. And, and she's, you know, and she's like this little, you know, this little kind of person yeah. in this massive kind of space. And then how close is danger? How far away is safety? How close Ooh. is all of that type of thing? Your body has a natural sense as to where that stuff is. So that can be a real, I mean, it's like, it's under the hood. It's really down there, but you know, you can definitely use it. And then the third, I said, interoception, proprioception. The third is your vestibular, so your balance. So, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory. You know, music can, music can feel like, whoa. (laughs) Living in the days of miracles and wonders. Exactly. Eight senses. Never thought I'd live to see the day. All right. Yeah. And I'm sure that those aren't the only ones. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Those are the ones that we've got so far. All right. (laughs) So... I love that. Before we kind of move on to mine, did you have anything else that you wanted to say? Um, about this one? Let me make sure I didn't. Um, no, I think I said everything. No, I just, I really like this piece a lot. I like One Summer's Day, but I've always preferred this one, actually. Yes, Six Station, for like three years in a row, was my number one most listened to piece of music. Oh, really? <laughs> yep. Nice. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah, it's very uh, pretty. It's very beautiful. Pretty. And so, I want to summarize a couple things, because we're mm-hmm. about to listen to the same exact piece of music, but in a different context. Right. And my scene has no dialogue. So for those of you who are only listening and not watching, you're going to be able to, well, all of you, everyone's going to be really able to focus on the music this time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you talked about nostalgia as being very ambiguous and filled mm-hmm. of, with contradicting signals. Mm-hmm. All right, loss, grief, but hope, uh, and a yearning for like the kind of something mm-hmm. more to come. So 
So a lot of contradicting symbols. Now I want you to listen to this music with that frame of mind. Because well, there's a lot of stuff going on. And unfortunately we don't have time nor kind of the equipment to go into a deep music analysis of this. Mm -hmm. But there's a couple of things I'm going to talk about to teach you how to use this yep. in your own music. Because I've got the keyboard here. Might as well talk about it. And my next piece is the uh, ubiquitous sixth station scene. Let's do this. No face! If you put even one scratch on that girl, you're in big trouble! There's the station! Here comes the train! Come on! Like I said, one of my all-time most favorite pieces of music ever written. Mm -hmm. I I need to see Joey Saishi in concert. He's been coming to America so much recently. Right. Like, I see him on Instagram everywhere, and he's, like, doing concerts. I think he's doing a concert right now or recording at the Hollywood Bowl mm -hmm. this weekend. Oh, I want to go. He did one in New York, and I wanted to go. Oh, curse my lack of money. Uh, <laughs> we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. I, I, I need to. That's, oh, I hope so one day. But anyway, 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 anyway. Mm -hmm. So many emotions right now. Yes. All right. So this is a very popular music piece of music of his. And there's a lot going on in the story. All right. So 
Sen defeated No-Face, the villain. She didn't do it through battle or anything. Mm-hmm. So what we learn is No-Face is the spirit with No-Face. It's never explicitly explained, but it's, you can follow along. He has no personality of his own. He takes on the personality of the beings around him. Mm-hmm. So when this spirit entered the bathhouse and was surrounded with creatures who are selfish, greedy, uh, narcissistic, all these kind of negative personality traits, that's what he became. And he's such a powerful monster slash spirit that he became a monster. And then when Chihiro tricks him into eating the medicine from the river spirit, which forces him to disgorge everything he's taking, mm-hmm. he's taken in. And he's chasing her, trying to get revenge. As he gets further and further away from the bathhouse, he starts to lose that influence. Mm-hmm. Until now, he's once again the harmless snow face, the spirit with no personality of his own, yeah. other than wanting to be with Sen and follow her around and see what's going to happen. So they're carrying her with us. And then this is the first time that we kind of get to see the spirit, the only time that we really get to see a lot of the world outside of the bathhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see all these different spirits, these spirits that are dark, featureless, but they seem to be going around rather mundane ex- existences. Um, and we see so much. And it's filled with all these ambiguous feelings that we've spent so much time discussing so far. This combination of loss, of grief, of sadness, of yearning and hope that all kind of... I love that description that you Mm -hmm. came up with. Like all those things like hope. I'd never thought of hope as being part of nostalgia, but I love that so much. (laughs) And so we've already talked about this. We could go down the rabbit hole, but I wanted to teach kind of what's musically going on. Because there's so much going on under here. but those four things that are crucial to music, size, movement, valence, and uh, gesture. Yeah. The simplest one, typically, is valence, how dark or bright it is. Because the harmony, the harmony you use is your single greatest tool for controlling how dark or bright your music is. So, mm-hmm. for example, let's get these earbuds in. Yep. So, typically, valence is very simple, right? It's pretty straightforward. If you have a minor chord, it sounds dark. Let's drop that in octave. It sounds nice, dark, and sad. E minor, A minor. If you work with a major chord, G major, C major, mm-hmm. it's much brighter. All right. Lots of people describe it as happiness and sadness. I disagree. I think it's a bright and dark mm-hmm. because not every dark emotion is sad. And you can use right. minor chords to portray a lot of different kinds of darkness. You can use right major chords to portray a lot of different brightness, not just happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are pretty cut and dry for yeah. like all intents and purposes. In Western music, over the past couple hundred years, we have come to associate minor chords with darkness and major chords with brightness. Mm-hmm. Now here's where it gets interesting. What happens when you combine those? You get a seventh chord. So here we have this bottom half, E minor. E, G, and B. Mm-hmm. Up here, we have G major. It goes G, B, and D. Mm-hmm. When you combine E minor with G major, you get these conflicting sounds. Right. It's The seventh chords are beautiful and deliciously useful for kind of nostalgia and ambiguity. You've got these conflicting signals. Now, you can go even further further. And if you want to learn more about this, check out my playlist, um, Harmony for Composers. I have a video about five plus note chords, extended harmony, that it covers all of this. Mm-hmm. And this is just kind of an, ex- basically I'm explaining for now just the basics of how it works. You combine an, a minor triad with a major triad and you get a minor seventh chord. 
Now if you keep going, what if we went from E minor, E, G, B, combine it with G major, G, B, D, and then just keep going. Go B, D, F sharp. We get the ninth chord. And these are the chords being used in this in this piece. Uh, I'm a terrible piano player, and this is like a 25 note keyboard, so I'm not gonna try and play the piece. But that big motif, bum, 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 da, 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 that was not the motif. I feel like that's a Christmas song. Bum, 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 ba, da, da, or whatever. It sounds but, like some uh, elf. Yeah, it, it, it is. That, that's the elf theme. Yep. All right, but I'm terrible. I don't have. Exactly. I was singing the elf theme. But no, 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 yeah. But the idea, whatever the motif is for Six Station, I'm kicking myself that I can't sing it. Do 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 do. That one. <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. yeah kind of one of the bass. Mm -hmm. uh, the bass line motif. That's an E minor oh, yeah. Yeah. nine chord. That's that chord right there, stretched out a bit more. So you go with the E B, and then it's a G. I think I. It took my earbuds out so I can hear it, what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. But you've got, basically, you're skipping notes in between, but the motif outlines an E minor nine. That very ambiguous chord, that combination. There's so many notes because that is technically a uh, five note chord. A triad, E, G, B, E minor is three. You add the D on top, you get E minor seven. That's a four note chord. Mm -hmm. Then you add the F sharp, E minor nine. That's a five note chord. There's so many different three note chords that you could build out of that. Mm -hmm. There's so many conflicting signs of minor chord, major chord, that it creates this very ambiguous kind of creature. And I call this more of a like a partial neutral valence. So dark valence, it's usually minor harmony. Bright valence, you want it to be a bright emotion, you use major harmony. Now, if you want something more ambiguous, there's a lot of strategies you can do for this. Mm -hmm. But one of the strongest, and the only one we'll cover for now, is just confusing your harmony with extensions. Right. By confusing those signals, by saying this is not cut in stone. There are a lot of different emotions, a lot of different directions you could go with this. Mm -hmm. For example, like even just the different ways, well, I'm, actually, I'm not gonna try because this keyboard is too small. But I was saying the different inversions you use, using open voicing where you're like stacking, like where you're skipping notes and raising them an octave or whatever. Yeah. You can do all kinds of really cool, weird, zany sounds. And that's a lot of what he does. That's a mm -hmm. lot of what Joe Hisaishi does in his soundtracks, is he uses extended harmonies like that. He uses these extended chords. And if you want to create more nostalgic, more ambiguously emotional music, that's one of the strongest go-to tools you can work with, is just to use extended harmony. Mm -hmm. I am gonna do one last plug for that playlist if you wanna go much more in depth, because this is, this is not a music theory podcast, this is more just music appreciation. Yeah. All right, so I'm, I love this piece of music, so I'm sharing a little bit of why it works. It's got conflicting signals in the harmony. But if you want to learn more about harmony and be more deliberate with how you can actually do it, Check out my playlists. I've got uh, Harmony for Composers. I've got Melody for Composers. Both of those are really good for getting you started writing your own music. I've got multiple orchestration playlists. Uh, all of these on Tabletop Composer at YouTube. Um, and then if you feel ready, if you're up for, like if you feel a little confident, you can write your own melodies, your own tunes and stuff, and you wanna learn how to be deliberate with your emotions, check out my online course, Portraying Emotions with Music. I'll teach you my entire process you get to work with me in live lectures. You get homework assignments. I get feedback. It's a really cool thing. I love working with people in it. But if you don't have the budget, I also have it available as an ebook. 
So check it out again, tabletopcomposer.com, the sponsor of this podcast. Yes. Uh, I'm going to keep saying that until we get a real sponsor. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, awesome. So that's just me geeking out. I don't know if we'll always have the keyboard here, but I just knew I wanted to share something yeah. here. Right. <laughs> but that was my last scene. Mm-hmm. Do you have another one? Yeah, uh, another scene, no. Oh. <laughs> so I actually was just going to kind of talk a little bit more about the dysphoria and some of the nostalgia. Ooh, that's good. Um, and, and, you know, just to kind of piggyback off of what you were saying and, and, and that there's a lot of, like, I think the, the word that kind of kept popping up to me was possibilities yeah. when it comes to this. So I think that that's where the hope kind of comes from when, it, when we're thinking yes. about the nostalgia. There are possibilities. And when you look at the harmony, when you look on the keyboard, right, it's like the same thing. Yeah. Like, it, we're adding the root of, you know, we can say, like, the major triad that's, like, a root. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, whichever. The triad being a, a yeah. pretty foundational structure in chords. Mm-hmm. And um, we're adding some more kind of, like, un- instability to that. Oh, yeah. Instability needs some kind of, like, thing to, like, make it make sense, if that makes sense. It's context. Yeah. It you, needs, need a, you need an anchor, a foundation. It needs an anchor, and it's asking for an anchor. So when you add more of those kind of, like what are supposed to be unsettling notes onto the top, yeah. it, like, asks for something else. Mm-hmm. And that something else not being there and coding it as, like, a something else... This is getting a little abstract. <laughs> yeah. Coding that, that thing that's not there but we want it to be, we, we intuitively are, like, we're, we're putting something in that position, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. That something, you know, that I shouldn't say that something, I should say that process of doing that, I think is, like, a component of nostalgia. And I oh, think yeah. that that's where they kind of buddy up. So there's that, that nice, like, bit of possibility that you can kind of sprinkle in there. I love that. There's just so, and that's very, very much kind of like a Studio Ghibli kind of vibe. Yes. Is that there's always <laughs> possibility. Because Studio Ghibli, I mentioned before, is very, very big on soft world building. Mm-hmm. We are shown so many things about this world and none of it is explained. Mm-hmm. We don't know the extent of Yubaba's power. We don't know how she got her power. We don't know where the spirits come from. We don't know what their day jobs are, because apparently they have day jobs during that scene we just watched. Right. We don't know how far the spirit world goes. We don't know where all that water came from. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, it can rain for a couple days, but it's not going to turn into an ocean. Like an we ocean. don't know. Right. They never really fully explain why No Face was that way. You have yeah. to kind of watch the film multiple times, get on forums, see yeah. what people on Reddit have to say about it. That's right. Like, it's very, very liminal. It's very yes. open. Very liminal. And, and liminal, lots of possibilities... You know, they all kind of go hand in hand. You know, trains, like transportation. It's yeah. a very liminal experience because you're you're going somewhere. You are literally in that space that possibility. between where you were and where you were going. The idea of being in transition. Exactly. Yeah. And these chords, you know, they, they look that way to me and they feel that way to mm-hmm. me. Like there should be some kind of transition, but it's okay to be in that transition. Oh, yeah. If that's what you're trying to capture. Oh, definitely. Because that's, that's a lot of what it was. So... Uh, Joey Saishi has taken great inspiration in his music from the Impressionist era, from modal jazz, from minimalism, (laughs) all kinds of these more like modernist kind of feels almost. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a lot of that is about the possibility. All right. So the idea that a dominant seven chord, this kind of chord right here, wants to resolve to C major. That was given. That was just part of it. Mm -hmm. All right. That was part of music theory for hundreds of years. Since the Baroque period, that's how it went. Yep. Now, the Impressionist era, with Claude Debussy and other composers in the uh, 1800s, mostly, kind of, well, like the late 1800s, early 1900s, I believe. I might be dating myself. I'm not a music historian, just a music history enthusiast. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But you said Baroque period? No, Impressionist. Oh, right. yeah. So the Impressionist period, 1900s. early 1900s, late 1800s, really started breaking away from that. They started saying, "What happens if we don't resolve? What if instead of going from G dominant seven, we just went to A dominant seven instead?" And I don't have my earbuds in, so I have no idea if I played that correctly. <laughs> that was a lot of pressure on me. Yep. But the idea is like, what if you just did, and then what if you did a chain of those? G major seven, A major seven, B major seven. Mm -hmm. You're going all over the place. Uh, you just keep, you refuse to resolve. You just keep going up in an arbitrary pattern. Mm -hmm. You're ignoring the rules of music theory. Um, and that's a huge kind of spirit of ignoring the rules of music theory and just going whatever direction feels right. Yeah. And that's one of the beautiful thing about these extended harmonies is there's so many potential for how could you move on from there. Right. There are five notes in that chord. You could resolve in all kinds of different directions. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, yeah, that's something I hadn't thought of before. It's like that, the element of possibility. I love that. Again, yeah. two <laughs> things that you've just kind of given me. All right, <laughs> The idea of like hope and yearning being part of, like not, not just yearning, but hope being part of nostalgia. And then this idea of possibility being yeah. important. That that's another way. The ambiguity comes from not knowing which direction you're going in. I love that. Yeah. It's awesome. Well, mm -hmm. any other thoughts you got? Um, no, I think just kind of closing thoughts in terms of everything is, you know, not everything has to be exactly the way it's portrayed. So what you mm -hmm. see on the screen or, you know, what the director might give you or the writers mm -hmm. or whatever you might like see we don't always have to just end things there. Yeah. You know, that doesn't have to be the space. We can fill, we can create more space, you know, with kind of a lot of these other contextual, you know, clues and emotions, right? right? So it's all layered. So motivation, I think, is probably, for yeah. me, a big takeaway in terms of, like, you can look a step deeper. It's okay. I think that's great. I, I encourage you to. I love that as a takeaway. The mm -hmm. idea that being deliberate with your choices. Yes. You don't have to make the obvious choice. You don't even have to make exactly. the technically correct choice. You just have to be deliberate mm -hmm. all right you have to stick to it it's like that story i told about uh i think i told the story earlier about my uh sister's friend who mm -hmm. was an artist and said that the difference between someone random slapping paint on a canvas and someone who's been trained for years slapping paint randomly in the pan uh and the canvas is the intention behind That's it the intention. and yeah. how deliberate you are with it like the artist can be deliberate that they're doing this specifically because they want this effect with this paint, with this canvas, with this lighting, with mm -hmm. this brush that they're using. The other person is just doing it randomly. Uh, but when you're working with music like this, you can go against the grain as long as you're deliberate, as long as it's serving the story. That's the overarching lesson between all of our, our videos that we've recorded so far is the composer is a storyteller. Yep. All right, And you are sticking to that story and everything you do is in service of telling the story you want to tell. Exactly. But awesome. Mm -hmm. Any closing words? Or is that your closing words? Those are my closing words. Those closing words. Okay. Awesome. So, thank you everybody for stopping by. We had a lot of fun, or I had a lot of fun. I did too. Uh, <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, next podcast episode will be Interstellar, if we release this in the order we were originally thinking. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if you enjoy it, please, if you made it this long, you are a real one. Thank mm -hmm. you. Please share it. Review the podcast. Those are the two biggest things you can do for free to help this thing grow. Mm -hmm. uh, well, three things. Subscribe, rate it, five stars or higher, mm -hmm. uh, and share it, all right? Even just copying the link, even if you don't send it anywhere, copying the link or clicking the share button and then copy the link, you don't even have to send it to anyone. Mm -hmm. They just love to see that, all right? Same with Instagram, like the page, save the posts, share it with people. They love to see that stuff. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but until next time, keep studying, keep working hard, and keep writing new music, my friends. We will see you in the next episode.